Welcome to Establish the Edge. I'm your host, Mike Leone, here with part six of the off-season projection special with, as always for this series, Ben Gretsch. You can follow Ben on Twitter, at Guards Per Gretsch. Make sure you check out his work, particularly his Substack, bengretsch.substack.com, and also his new podcast with Sean Siegel, Stealing Bananas, which you can find on iTunes as part of Rotoviz Radio. On today's edition of the show, Ben, we've got the NFC North uh, to look at. How you doing? You ready for this pod? I'm ready. Yeah, we, you and I made an, uh, a little bet, a little side bet that whether Aaron Rodgers would start week one. I was feeling pretty good about that for a, a little bit. There, there was a point where you kind of acknowledged that I might be the the, the favorite for a bit after we made the bet. Uh, but as usual, Leone the Sharp has probably won this one. Uh, you know, I've still seen some rumblings he might get traded, but I, I do. I think I'm. I think I got my money in good, just swindling, then getting <laughs> wide-eyed. Anthony Amico refuses to believe Aaron Rodgers is going to go to Green Bay. So, if Amico, you're listening. Sorry, buddy, you can't project onto him what you think's going to happen, man. Anthony I wants mean, Rodgers was, to be freed. I, I was, I was convinced that that he wasn't going to be back either. I mean, he has reason to be upset with the team and seemed legitimately upset with the team, but I guess he doesn't really have options. So he wants to play and we'll see. I mean, he, I mean, he tweeted out, he tweeted out one more or whatever. Like I, I think he was, kind oh, of, did he? yeah, pretty okay. clearly indicating like he's going to be back. So we'll start with green Bay then. And we've got green Bay similarly projected in terms of play calling around 64 plays per game. 35 pass attempts, 27 rush attempts. I'm slightly higher on the total plays, but the pass run ratio we have right in line. We both have Rodgers around 345 fantasy points in terms of standard scoring. And that breaks down to about 35 touchdowns, 4,600 passing yards for Rodgers, who for me, it's funny people, a lot of people kind of think he's undervalued because the risk in ADP has been, the risk that he hasn't come back in some fashions, like baked into the ADP, but I think his non-baked in risk ADP is so high that he's actually being valued appropriately in drafts. I think he really has to run pretty good on efficiency. And I don't, I don't know. They, they, they just ran so well last year in terms of the offensive efficiency. I know they didn't throw a ton and you could make up for some of that with volume, but I don't see him. Like I have him behind Brady and Burrow as far as like that tier of guys that's more, you know, pocket passer oriented. Maybe that's too harsh. What do you think? Uh, no, I think that's pretty fair. Um, you know, Rogers throughout his career, and we saw a little bit with their offense last year. Like his own efficiency starts to hurt him because they they like to get. And I don't know if it's because you know the cold weather later in the year or whatever, but his end of season numbers, he never ends up with tons of volume. It's like they get. They get ahead and they get a little more conservative. They kind of have his whole career. Uh, 2019, their 13-win their team was a little faster paced, a little more passing. But last year we saw them a little more dominant on offense. Uh, I believe their pass rate over expectation numbers that you shared with me, I believe they were dead even both years. So they were just in better in better scripts, but that worked out to them being slower, adding rushes, few, you know, even despite fewer plays, fewer passes, fewer sacks and all that, more conservative on offense. I, there's just not a lot of scenarios like with Burrow. We could see just massive pass volume. I don't feel like we'll, we'll see that with Rodgers. We'll see the efficiency. 
Brady's interesting, kind of, I think, kind of a similar comp, right? Like, they're going to probably lead games, and, and I don't know that we'll see tons of volume from him necessarily. Probably has potential to get to more than Rodgers, but uh, both those guys are kind of in a range where I'd probably just wait, not take a quarterback, you know, and, and wait and take one of the rookies with a little more dual threat upside. Yeah, and as it applies to skill players, if Rodgers does indeed come back as it looks – you know, Aaron Jones, Devonte Adams have gone at pretty big discounts, and I wrote in the ADP report on established to run. I wonder if there's a lag in Devonte Adams's ADP where we have this window now where we feel good about Rodgers coming back. It's not a hundred percent, but we feel good about it. And but people might be like a little bit latched on to the ADP that's been solidified over months of drafting, where you might have this window where you can still get Adams in round two when he's. You know, we've, we talked about in managed leagues, Ben, taking Stefan Diggs possibly third overall, right? Like Devontae Adams is probably in that conversation. If you know Aaron Rodgers, he, he might be, he probably is ahead of Diggs for me, uh, or at least right in line with yep. Diggs. So he came out for me just above Diggs, and I'm, I'm aggressive on Diggs, but you, you have to be aggressive on Adams. There's really no, no, you know, excuse not to be uh, projection wise or otherwise, you know, just like in what you're, what you're assuming he can do His TV rates have been massive. They, they use him very specifically in the red zone on, on, you know, bubble screens, like basically like extended handoffs. Um, Rogers just looks to him so much in those, in those key spots. Like he's such an easy um, favorite, you know, I don't know if he would necessarily be a good odds bet, but an easy favorite to lead the league in receiving touchdowns. Like, and, and then on top of that, be a, a, a massive target dominator and put up tons of yards. Like, yeah, I think you're right about the leg in ADP. And especially now that we've seen that Rogers is back, he's probably the wide receiver one, you know, he's right up there with it. Now we have like a, a, a very clear tier of, of the top three, I think that are, all could be just massive this year. Yeah. And I still have a little bit of a conservative Devonte Adams projection and that gets him at 320 PPR points. You've got him at 350, which I think is probably more where I'll settle as I continue to remove any Rogers associated risk with Devonte Adams. You hit on, he's just a unique player. He's kind of like the CMC of, of the wide receivers between the goal line role, the massive amount of targets, you know, how many catches he's going to get uh, and, and just, him and Rogers just seem like the perfect fit together. Um, we had talked about being very concerned about Adams uh, if Rogers wasn't here because of that perfect fit and how things might you know fall off a little bit steeper than you might think. You know, if it was somebody else at quarterback, but it doesn't look like that's going to be the case. I think too that there's some upside in the secondary wide receivers, because they're all going for essentially free. Alan Lazard, Marcus Valdez-Scantling, Amari Rogers. I don't know who I prefer. I have Amari bumped up a little bit, just hoping he kind of plays that, you know, maybe more Randall Cobbish type role that they haven't had, you know, since he left and just the uncertainty of things. I know Herzig has Amari Rogers as one of his late round targets in best ball. Um, but all these guys are more best, but like Lazard, Marquez, Valdez, Scantling, I don't think you're ever, they're not doing anything for you in managed leagues. Um, you know, usually if you're talking managed league strategy, it's rolling the dice on someone uncertain like Amari or, you know, kind of passing here. Yeah. Um, so Lazard, you know, a couple stats, Lazard had a higher targets per outrun both the last two years than MVS has had in any year of his career. He's also been efficient Lazard, um, 
in terms of you know the the adjusted uh, a dot adjusted racer that I've talked about how how much he's turned his air yards into receiving yards he's been uh, well above average both years Lazard was uh, had a good prospect profile as well it was kind of um, one of those surprise slips and I believe he went undrafted and then you know he's worked his way into a role on an NFL team and I, I you know Marcus Valdez Scantling last year even with Lazard missing six games, had averaged 4.5 targets per game. Lazard's averaged 4.6 and 4.7 the last couple of years. Uh, I don't think MVS really has, you know, he's basically going to be a, a deep threat. They, they had some issues with his consistency last year. Um, I, I like Lazard over him for sure. And then Rodgers is sort of the wild card, like you said. Amari Rodgers, he's going to be the slot guy. Um, they used Tyler Irvin sort of in that role last year. He didn't get a lot of usage. Randall Cobb also didn't get a lot of usage in his rookie year. And, and in Rogers' career, it's taken a couple of years for him to trust guys. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, if, if Rogers gets, I mean, Cobb was one of the quickest ones to latch on with Rogers and it's up till year, year two for him. It'll be interesting to see if Rogers gets that early opportunity or if he's sort of, uh, you know, just used on jet motion and some of the, you know, limited things that Tyler Irvin did last year. I have him, you know, getting some rush attempts as well. But have his targets a little lower uh, than you. I'm I'm kind of concerned about where the volume could be. But I agree that like, in far as far as like uncertainty and upside, he's he's the play, right? Yeah. Uh, moving over to tight end, you know, Tunyon's an interesting case for me. You have him a few more targets than I do, which you know honestly might be coming from me having maybe just too many wide receiver targets. Like I, I might the way they their offense operates. I might have too many wide receiver four targets flooded to Amari Rogers being optimistic on him. And as a result, I have Tunyon for 62 targets. You have 72, which you know is a pretty meaningful difference as far as where you're going to slot him with these mid-tier tight ends. He is someone that, you know, if he's getting there, he's getting there more on efficiency than he is in terms of racking up volume. So, you know, an extra 10 targets, if you're pretty efficient, going to score touchdowns, does matter. You have him with an extra you know, 120 yards or so than what I have. I'm looking at FFPC ADP and I feel pretty good that he's overdrafted there because the tight end premium scoring there, one and a half PPR, like again, it favors more like volume over efficiency. But if you're in, you know, a half PPR league, he's probably in that like T12 to 13 range where you've got like Herb Smith and guys like that. Yeah, he's interesting because he's going about tight end 13 or tight end 14. Uh, I noticed this earlier in the offseason. And and it's because people are reg- regressing the 11 touchdowns and the super high catch rate. He caught 52 passes on 59 targets. Like that's he's not going to be able to s- sustain a uh, you know 90 or whatever, eight, high 80% catch rate. Um and, and certainly the touchdown rate, 11 TDs on 59 targets is, is just otherworldly, and he won't sustain that either. People are regressing all that down, but what's interesting is he's going like 10 and 13 or 14. He still was like tight end 13 in catches last year, and um, I think like right around tight end 13 or tight end, yeah, tight end 13 in yards as well. So he, like he was the 13th highest. And so, yeah, the volume wasn't there. He wasn't even a top 10 tight end in terms of catches and yards, but he's getting drafted right around where he actually was with receptions and yards. And the reason I'm projecting him for more volume is he was really efficient. Something we see in, in rookies and young players is efficiency leads to more volume. When you look at this team, you're talking about how their secondary receivers aren't really established. And we know Aaron Jones and Devonta, you know, Jones will be involved in the passing game and Adams will kind of be the centerpieces, but it would not be that surprising, especially if Rogers is back. If 
Tanyan becomes more part of the offense because of how good he was last year. Like he was sort of just establishing himself last year. Why wouldn't they throw to- toward him more? I think Rogers obviously trusts him. They were very, their connection was very good last year. So I think part of it is he's pushed down a little bit too far because people are sort of over regressing some of this efficiency. Is it that crazy to assume that he could have another really high TD rate and be very efficient again? Like what, what, at least we saw it from him. It's better to project that from someone like him than, than some other guys. Right. Yeah, no, that's a compelling argument, and I'm I'm probably going to boost Tunyon based on that. I think I, I see the logic there, and I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's one of many spots we've seen through doing this projection series where the field has been a little sharper than it's been in the past. And sometimes in the past, it's been easy to be like, this guy's going to get overdrafted, and you have that bias in your mind. And then he doesn't end up getting overdrafted. And, you know, you have to at least ask yourself the question. Like, you can't just rely on the assumption that the field is going to screw it up. And then you don't really have to address the problem as much as, like, maybe you should. So I might have failed there uh, in terms of Tanya. And so I'm probably going to slide some more targets his way. And also, all these Green Bay guys, I'm, like, slowly, like, improving their upside cases with the Rodgers stuff. And they're going to be coming up the ETR rankings because you know if you know rogers most likely being there again is a pretty big deal it's important for aaron jones this is one of justin herzig he released his best ball portfolio one of his highest owned running backs because he's been getting him in round two a lot and doing a lot of the hyper fragile starts jones is really compelling to me i know early in the offseason before the rogers stuff went down we were in our etr slack talking about him as high as like, should we be taking him over Kamara, you know, with Kamara having the, you know, Taysom Hill risk, that type of stuff. And the really bull case for Aaron Jones is he doesn't need an absurd rush volume to get there. We've seen that for a couple seasons now because the offense is pretty efficient and he's just a very talented back. And now with Jamal Williams out, does Aaron Jones see like 14% of the team's targets, you know? Not saying that AJ Dillon can't catch, but those that role that Jamal Williams played, maybe it's split between Dillon and Aaron Jones in terms of the receiving and that extra bump to what Jones already had in receiving is a big deal. I know doing the DFS projections, there were times last year when we did have him with a 14% target share, and the DFS projection on those weeks did get kind of nutty. Yep. And I, you know, I, I kind of did that with my projection, exactly what you said, sp- sort of split Jamal Williams between his receiving between Aaron Jones and AJ Dillon um, so that Jones has his own receiving from last year and then adds, adds some. One thing that I, I saw that I thought was really interesting was in 2019, Jones and, and Jamal Williams before AJ Dillon came along as this pretty high profile third back uh, and, and still under Matt LaFleur, um, they had almost all the running back carries. They're, the other running backs totaled 13 carries um, besides Jones and, and Jamal. And that includes like fullbacks and and Tyler Irvin. I don't know if you consider Tyler Irvin a running back, but um, very, very few to the other people and and, and to the other backs. So I have a really small projection on Kylan Hill, who looks like probably their third back, seventh rounder, pretty good profile. But I'm sort of expecting, look, they drafted Dylan in the second round. Um, They've never given Aaron Jones more than 15 carries per game in a season. And, And so on the carry side, I do actually have him for more carries than you, Jones. But I'm I'm kind of expecting um, you know, that Dylan's gonna be worked in a lot. And I think that's sort of being overlooked with his ADP. He's going right around Tony Pollard. I feel a lot better about AJ Dylan's standalone value 
than I do about Pollard's, for example. Like Zeke is still under a massive contract and has gotten these massive workloads before. Aaron Jones really hasn't. They brought in Dylan very different back size-wise than Jones, who's under 210, not really workhorse volume. He obviously, I think, can be that guy if they needed him to be, but I don't know that they see him as that, whereas Dylan is 235 plus in you know size-speed combo, very efficient runner when he got used down the stretch late last year. Like when they're salting away games, salting away leads, they're going to get the ball to AJ Dillon, right? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point that you made about like them maybe having all the carries and AJ Dillon is maybe shaping up to be the perfect, you know, zero RB candidate, you know, in, in some ways it reminds me of Kareem Hunt last year. It's a little different in that we had this really high pass expectation role for Kareem Hunt and the ADP was different. But in terms of the hybrid of standalone value and then like really, really high end upside, if the injury in front occurs, like he's got that hybrid mold, which is exactly what you're looking for. I just took him last night in an FFPC pros versus Joe's. I've probably had him a little too low again, like just baking in Rogers risk. And maybe I think I've had Pollard a little too high as much. as I love Pollard. Um, it's just tough to know with Pollard, like, and we'll get to this on the Dallas pod, but like what is his standalone value? You know, we, we don't really know, but I think Dylan's it's for sure there, you know, if this team yeah. puts up a lot of points, he's going to score. He's going to have weeks where he just finds the box and he, and he's decent. And he's going to have weeks, like you said, where they just run the ball a lot and they're not going to give Aaron Jones 25 carries. So if you get 15 pretty efficient carries from AJ Dillon, like that's really good. And we, we mentioned splitting the receiving role a little bit from Jamal Williams. So it's not like he can't catch. He just really hasn't been asked to do it in the past. I know Anthony Amico is a, a big A.J. Dillon. Yeah, fan. if you talk about his, his college profile, and, and we see this, and, and I think this is uh, Amico's point. You know, I don't want to speak for him, but um, we see with some of these backs that are like so dominant on the ground that basically the colleges don't want to throw to them. Uh, or they don't need to, I, I should say. They don't need to throw to them. He was their whole offense at Boston College. They had very limited passing numbers. They just gave him the ball a ton. And, and that workhorse uh, rushing ability that he showed in college translates well. We see that translate well from a predictive sense. Guys that can handle tons of work tend to actually, like people, we used to think like that's too many touches. He's now worn down. It's actually a good sign. Like he can he can withstand a lot of touches. And then they just basically didn't need to throw to him. And actually... Notice this in Jonathan Taylor's profile last year. It was a, a guy that everyone said couldn't catch. He ended up with more than 30 catches as a rookie. He had his best catch receiving games against some of the better defenses he played in college when his rushing efficiency was poor. When his rush, rushing efficiency was good, he wouldn't catch a lot of passes. Then when his efficiency was poor, they'd throw him the ball three or four or five times. He'd have three or four or five catches. It was a pretty interesting if you go back and look at his college game log. Dylan you know, didn't have that same sort of layout, but it, it kind of reinforced the point to me when I was looking at Taylor that some of these colleges, they, they basically say, we just are going to turn around and hand the ball off to them because teams can't stop that anyway. Yeah, 100%. And that's why that type of context is important. The only other back they really have here is Kylan Hill, who I think, you know, in redraft is pretty irrelevant, maybe has some pass catching chops, but no one uh, we're really interested in and no one we're too concerned about taking those snaps away from Dylan and yeah and Aaron jones early on not, not to harp on it but dylan's like one of my favorite targets the last thing i want to say about dylan if rogers is back you know obviously that's that's really helpful for adams and tunyon and, and aaron jones the main guys i don't know that it's more helpful for anyone but dylan it's not it's not as helpful for the secondary receivers i mean it is but i think 
we were just talking about Dylan is a big back, could get some extra TD work. Like the offense being better is so good for Dylan. I think he'll also get the plus script work I was mentioning. If if Rodgers is back, Dylan is way undervalued. 100%. I love A.J. Dylan. Uh, he's in that group of zero RB guys that I really like, and I've been gobbling up exposure to. Uh, there's another zero RB guy I like on Chicago, not quite as much. That's Damian Williams. We'll get into him in a second, but let's look at Chicago globally. Uh, another, t- we're, we're a little bit different on pass run ratio here, and this is something I'm, I might need to tweak in my stuff. You had noted I looked low on Montgomery carries, but we both have him at about 64 plays. I have almost 36 pass attempts, and you have 34, uh, which again puts you higher on rush attempts by about one rush attempt per game. And I'm pulling up my play calling for Chicago now to look at kind of how I landed on that. And I think some of it's, you know, a result of game script, but given that I am expecting Justin Fields to play a little bit, I do think that I am a little bit high on this uh, this pass rate. Well, and I, I might be low on the run side. It's hard. It's hard to tell. Um, but you know, something I was mentioning to you before we jumped on. I I've heard this narrative that Fields didn't run a lot, and I think people are comparing it to to Trey Lance to some respects. And Lance's rushing numbers were massive. Fields wasn't necessarily a, a particularly efficient rusher as a quarterback in college, but he did run plenty. Uh, and the the guy that I just want to compare him to or, or looked up immediately was Kyler. Um, I think like guys like Lamar ran so much that it's hard to make a comparison. But Kyler Murray ran 140 times in 14 games in his one main year as a starter, exactly 10 times per game, 140 and 14. Fields, as a sophomore at OSU, ran 137 times in 14 games, basically right at the same number. And then as a junior, he only played eight games. He ran 81 times again, right at that 10 per game number. I, you know, Kyler didn't come to the NFL and continue to run 10 times per game. So that's not what you project to the NFL. But when you look at their college, like uh, actual rates of rush attempts, you know, times that they took off and scrambled and all of those things, fields took off just as much as Kyler did in college. So I, I think, you know, that that's probably part of why I went a little more run heavy is I'm, I'm projecting fields to, to play a really good amount. And I have him rushing 80 times as a rookie right away and not being as efficient as a runner again, as Kyler was right away. But um, I think he's going to scramble plenty. Yeah. I think that's a good point. I also like feel like, and I made this point in the Jets pod, but with Zach Wilson too, like, I think he's going to run a little more than people think. And yeah. And in, in fields in particular, I don't know. Maybe it's just because we have like Lamar, Jalen Hurts, Trey Lance in our head that we're treating him relative to a baseline that we don't have to treat him at. Like he's going to run and he's going to be good at it. So I love fields. I'm all about the rookie quarterbacks this year in basically every format, redraft managed, uh, best ball, what have you. There's obviously some risk that he doesn't start to begin this season, but if you're taking a late round quarterback strategy, you need to be cognizant of taking guys that have legitimate upside. You know, it's not, you're not taking guys to that are boring that you can stream and piece together on matchups. I don't think that's going to work anymore. So it's guys like fields that maybe you complement with, you know, a safer type quarterback that at least gets you through this start of the year. So uh, do you have uh, any takes on fields versus Lance versus Lawrence for redraft? Um, I, obviously uh, I, you got to love Lance's situation that he just has three very, very good targets to throw to a very smart coach. And, and so he's the one that the upside is just so, so easy to see, but we're probably, 
you know, he, he's going higher than Lawrence now. And I think we're probably discounting a little bit collectively. Lawrence is rushing and, and projected, you know, uh, uh, passing efficiency, which, you know, he's expected to be one of the better passing quarterback, or at least he's one of the better passing quarterback prospects in, in a lot of years. So I'm, I would, I would put those two certainly, you know, above fields and redraft, but I still feel very good about fields long-term. One of the big notes on fields was he was super accurate. He, he, he graded well in all the accuracy metrics. So, um, that's something that translates well and is an important stat to have. And, and so he's a guy that with the rush, you know, he's going to run more than people probably are talking about. And if he can be accurate, um, he can make the whole Chicago offense a lot better. It's just harder to see it. Like he has to take a, a, a team that has been a little bit, not, not that interesting. Matt Nagy has not been that great of a, a head coach for fantasy over the last few years and, and make them interesting sort of just by his own play. I think he's capable of doing that. It's just a little harder to see, you know? Yeah, and as we look at the wide receivers, we have very similar lines on Allen Robinson, just shy of 150 targets, around 1,165 receiving yards, about six and a half receiving touchdowns, over 90 catches, puts him at about 250 PPR points. I've got Robinson in that tier that, I mean, kind of the same tier the market has him in, which is McLaurin and the Dallas guys. I think like kind of like there's a top tier the top 10 receivers and then there's a cutoff then there's those four guys robinson mccorn the dallas guys and then i think there's a little bit of a cutoff before we get to like dj moore the tampa bay guys and the rams guys how are you approaching robinson you know in that tier is he a target for you or just like for me he's been kind of like i don't know i've drafted him here and there but I'm not, I never feel super excited about it. Yeah. He's one of the hardest guys for me to, to value. I, I'm the exact same way. Um, I probably don't need to say much more than that, but I, I have, I'm so high on DJ more that I have taken more over him. At the same time, I'm really questioning that there's other guys that have taken more over where I feel like it's easy to make an upside case for more over those guys. Cause I, again, you know, you can go back and um, l- listen to our, our, our last pod where I, I talked about more, but um why I'm so high on him, but Robinson, I think the upside case is actually pretty easy to make. He's had over 150 targets both the last two years. And if fields is as good and as accurate, as I just said, it's going to be the best quarterback he's ever played with. So Robinson's the one that I'm, I like, I feel like I'm missing his ceiling a little bit. Like it would not surprise me if he has a late career uh, stretch here for the next three, four years that are the best of his career. Cause he's finally playing with, or maybe not the best cause he did have some really strong peak seasons, but you know, sort of the best sustained stretch, right? Because he's finally playing with the best quarterback he ever had. A lot of that's, you know, tied to how good Fields is. Okay, so outside of Allen Robinson, rest in peace to some of my early offseason Anthony Miller shares. It sounds like he's, you know, firmly on the roster bubble. They have Darnell Mooney here, who's, you know, flashed some decent ability last year to get open down the field. None of his quarterbacks could get him the ball. I'm having a tough time evaluating him. Like part of me, thinks he's wildly overvalued. And then part of me thinks, you know, maybe I just need to be a little bit more imaginative in that his season last year could have looked really differently with competent quarterback play. They also have Demir Bird. Uh, they have the rookie. I think it's Daz Newsom there. So, you know, it's it's not super exciting behind Robinson. Mooney's the guy with the most relevant fantasy value. He's really the only one with uh, and viable ADP right now. Yeah, and kind of same point as Robinson, right? Um, I agree. I haven't taken a lot of Mooney, but, and, and, and because I've sort of thought that he's overvalued on his face, but if you're projecting fields to improve this offense, 
then the upside for Mooney could be very strong, especially as you noted, because he, he didn't have very many catchable targets last year, didn't have a lot of you know help from the quarterback position. If the quarterback position is raising the offense, he looks like he's going to be the pretty clear number two. You'd, you'd expect that that would boost his ceiling for sure. At tight end, you know, Cole Komet is someone, I also wonder if we're treating his rookie season a little too disfavorably to what we should. You know, historically, we know rookie tight ends aren't going to perform that much. They're not going, you know, it's going to take them a little while to be worked in. And Komet, and you pointed this out on ship chasing at the end, I believe it was, or stat chasing at the end of last season, the show that you did with Pat Corrine, that Komet really started to wrestle the full-time snap share away from Jimmy Graham towards the end of the season. And to me, that's a very positive sign and maybe should be a bigger takeaway with all that said, like I don't have Komet as a streaming value or anything, but I do think, you know, he's one of a few reasons that when I miss out on a certain level of tight ends, I'm kind of just waiting. Like I don't care that much if I take Cole Komet versus, you know, like Gerald Everett's got an up to T14 on underdog, for example. So someone like Komet is going, you know, three rounds later. So I'm a little bit more willing to wait in drafts and take a tight end like Komet that I think. I don't know. I think the odds of stuff hitting and like the impact these guys are having probably isn't going to be a huge difference. Yeah. I like Komet. Uh, good prospect. Only had eight targets in the first nine games. And that's when he, uh, he had not played over 50% of the snaps in any of those games. Uh, in week 10, he um, played 70% and, and from there on played at least 70% in every game and, and closed the year playing 80% plus. And in those games, he averaged over five game, targets per game. Uh, so, you know, before he was less than one target per game, and then he was up over five. We, a good comp right, right here is, is Adam Trotman, who we talked about in the last show, and we were, like, throwing our hands up a little, like, how do you project this guy forward when he only had 16 targets as a rookie, had a chance to start one game, you know, got shut out, didn't show us anything that indicates that he's actually the clear tight end in New Orleans, and there's a lot of tight ends that have gone in the third round that have not been productive. Komet on the other hand, was a little bit better prospect, uh, was a second round pick and did show us late last year for that stretch. And then even in their one playoff game, he got four targets in that game that that he could you know earn the playing time and earn the targets. He had, again, averaged over five per game down the stretch when he was playing more. So you we did see that. We did see a little bit of improvement. That's why I'm comfortable projecting him forward for a second year breakout in a way that I'm not comfortable projecting Troutman for because we actually saw some of that that movement forward. And Graham, on the other side, to your point, he went from six and a, uh, 6.1 targets per game in the first half to 3.4 in the second half. So he was kind of an afterthought when when Komet made a step forward. I it, I, I think, yeah, that, that Komet makes a lot of sense as an the, upside bet. Yeah, the annoying thing is like, Graham is still there and it does seem like even when those targets were shifting at the end of the year that they carved out a red zone role for yep. Graham, which is kind of where sometimes these back end tight ends are making their, you know, their, their value is if, if they're hitting the end zone or not. Yeah. I have Graham for a, you know, 1.5 percentage point higher TD rate. So six and a half percent compared to 5% for commit have them close in touchdowns, even though I have commit going for, 23 more targets. And yeah, I, I completely agree. It's kind of a headache. So David Montgomery is another scenario, not totally unlike the Tunyon scenario where the market is baking in a decent amount of regression here and some risk where like you almost do have to ask yourself the question, like, is he, 
is he an okay running back to be drafted? He's basically being drafted where he was being drafted last year, despite having what ended up being a league winning season with the injury to treat Cohen and his success down the stretch. I'm really skeptical about Montgomery in large part because I was skeptical of him last year. And I actually think in some ways it's a worse spot than it was last year. You know, Tariq Cohen's back. I know he might not be ready week one, but you've also got Damian Williams who I could be wrong on this, but I think he's going to play. Like, I think he's going to be mixed in a decent bit here. And he's someone that can do a little bit of everything. And maybe I'm overly optimistic on that front. And as a result, overly pessimistic on Montgomery, Ben, you still have him for about 264 carries. I have him about 214. And some of this too also flows back to, I think I might have him just a touch too pass heavy. Yeah. And I might be too run heavy, but I agree with everything you said. I think he's in a worse spot. Uh, you know, when Colin went down, their backup was Cordero Patterson, right? They didn't have anyone. And what happened was Montgomery started running a ton more routes. His targets per game went from 2.2 his rookie year to 4.5 last year which was a huge part of the of the breakout he was also a lot more efficient he had some long runs late in the year his touchdowns you know rose especially late in the year he was playing a bunch of uh, a really strong schedule for fantasy production a very a bunch of soft run defenses everything sort of broke right for him last year um this year now you know cohen's not necessarily rehabbing really well sort of the the, the word we're getting but we know he's back and when he was there he was seeing about three times as many targets as montgomery so Immediately, just having him back in any kind of capacity, you have to assume that Montgomery can't match his re- receiving work. The thing that was really notable to me against Damian Williams, to your point, when I went through my projections, he was really good. The you know the last time we saw him, he opted out last year, but the last couple of years he's been really good. I hadn't really thought through what the Damian Williams ad meant, but I think it pretty clearly means that if Cohen's not all the way right, they do now cl- you know have a second back that they can work alongside Montgomery, which they didn't really have last year. Uh, and Williams, like, he, as I thought through it more and looked at all of his past data, like, you can go back. A big reason I was a fan of his with the Chiefs, you can go back to his Miami time. He caught at least 20 balls per uh, in every season, even when he was, like, a, a young player that wasn't playing a lot with Miami. Mm-hmm. Every year of his career, he's caught at least 20 passes. This guy will catch some passes. Both of us aren't projecting him for 20 pass catches this year, but that's because we have Cohen, you know. But so the, the point sort of is if Cohen's not there all the way, then Williams is probably going to cut into Montgomery's receiving work. It's it's not a good situation for him to to match Montgomery to match that dual workload that he had last year when now he has two good pass catching backs behind him. Yeah, and I think this is where projections can be pretty helpful because I know from a macro standpoint sometimes we want to look at like what's the bull case, what's the bear case and like but there are, you know, levels within the bear case, levels within the bull case. And Damian Williams affects both of those for David Montgomery. You know, if he's taking a little bit of base rushing work and stuff from Montgomery while Cohen's healthy and Montgomery doesn't have the pass down role, like that's that's tough, you know. And then if Tariq Cohen gets hurt again and Montgomery just kind of stays in his base case because Damian Williams is picking up the extra flack. You know, so so you start to see degrees where, okay, the probability of him hitting like the really high end case is shrunk. You know, the probability of him having an okay enough season for us in a time of the draft where there's a ton of opportunity cost is a little bit less if Damien's taking work. So uh, his ADP has been on the rise recently on the Tree Cohen news, but Ben and I are not buying it. And I like that you have Williams for more rushes than I do. And that was a good point. 
Um, I'm probably going to tweak that and bring down Montgomery's a little because, yeah, Williams is also a way more capable early down runner than, you know, he showed us that with the Chiefs and, and he's more capable than than anything Montgomery sort of had behind him in the past. So that's I think it's really clear that the, the Bears wanted to address the fact that they were without backups to Montgomery. That was great for fantasy last year, but this year it's it's not great for him. Okay, going over to Minnesota. Uh, I have them a little more up-tempo than Ben, about one and a half more plays per game. I do wonder if there's supposed defensive improvement or just natural regression on that front might result in the pace coming down, and I, I might not have that factored in quite enough. Uh, and we You also- seem to be higher in play volume than me on every team, so maybe I'm just low on my play volume over, overall as well. Yeah, I am a little bit higher – I'm looking at like the average plays that I have per team and I have it at like 64.4, which I think is right. If we're, if we're including, we're including sacks in that. Yeah. That's a little, a little above the my, sort of my target. And I'm on the bottom of my target. I'm at 63.8. I had a 63.8 to 64.3 target. So like, we're, yeah, we're just basically on the bottom and, and top of sort of the, the viable range. Yeah, and Minnesota is somewhat tough to project too. They they ran a lot of plays last year, but as I noted, you know their margin, um, or not their margin, but like their defense was really bad <laughs> last year, and they played some kind of frantic second halves at times. We'll see if that lasts. And then like the pass rate's a little bit tough to figure out too because they they are very run heavy. And my like default algorithm like this is the type of team that probably going to throw more than they did last year on a percentage basis. But we also know their identity isn't necessarily to, to do that. And if their defense is better, that would indicate they wouldn't throw as much. So does your, does your default take into account your pass rate over expectation stuff? Yeah, it okay. does. Cause they, they were four and a half percentage points behind expectation last year and 8.3 the year before. So, you know, the last two years they've been well behind expectation, but you, you know, if, if it's taken into account, that's, Certainly interesting, but that's part of why I have them pretty run heavy again, because they yeah that's their identity, like you said. Basically, like this, if I had them at like a neutral pass rate over expectation, I would have them at like a sixty point five percent rate of called pass plays, not pass attempts. I have them at about a fifty nine percent now, so it would be about one and a half percentage swing, but. I'm factoring in, in addition to that, like the projected game script for the year a little bit, like the totals of the game, like there's a certain pace. So yeah, um, it's hard because the regression's there for a reason. Like historically, we've seen these teams as confident as we are, like things happen. You know, we, we talk about this a lot in the opening pod with Tennessee. Um, but at the same time, to your point, we have two straight years of evidence that they're going to be pretty run heavy. Either way, they're going to pass less than the league average. Either way, I think Kirk Cousins is someone who's overdressed. Like I've seen Cousins go in that. I, I just don't have much use for Kirk Cousins. I have not drafted him much. Maybe I'm being too hard on him, but. He's one of those guys that I think in fantasy, we've seen good analysis in the past that shows when receivers have high ADP that probably the quarterback needs to match that. But he's one of the guys that, that analysis I think doesn't make any sense for really. Um, doesn't add a ton of rushing ability. He has had some spike touchdown rush, rushing touchdown seasons in the past, but like we wouldn't really necessarily expect that. And then more to the point, it's a really concentrated offense. So Justin mm-hmm. Jefferson and Adam Thielen can get there 
without Cousins having gaudy pass numbers and without new rushing, like there's not really any upside that, that there's not really upside in this offense for him to throw enough to be a, you know, a, a more, a, a less mobile passer and also really good at fantasy. He, he would need so such big passing numbers and it's just too, it's too concentrated. Uh, or the reason we still see good receiver numbers is, is, is concentrated, but there's, it's too run heavy basically. Yeah. Covered this on the Carolina podcast where, you know, they had three really good, useful fantasy wide receivers and a useful fantasy running back, and their quarterback was completely irrelevant in fantasy. Uh, and and Cousins is not going to be completely irrelevant, but just doesn't move the needle too much for me. Receivers, Justin Jefferson does move the needle. We each have him around 138 targets. His efficiency last year was out of this world, and what was stunning to me, I was looking at players. I tweeted this last year. I don't remember the exact list, but the way he got to his yards per target, like, and Blair Andrews of Rotoviz has done some studies on this too, where yards per target is really volatile year over year, but there's a little bit more stability if you break it down into its component pieces, which is catch rate and yards per reception. And of players with Justin Jefferson's extremely high yards per catch which he had last season there were very very few that had the absurdly high catch rate that he had i'm trying to look up the exact number um I'll well, you while you look that up that. the other way you can break it down that's that's interesting for sure the other way you can break it down is before catch and after catch right so like a dot and then yak and and jefferson did really well in those regards too. Like some, some guys are just deep threats that have spike efficiency, but Jefferson had over 400 yards after the catch last year, which is a benchmark I've seen before um, as, as pretty notable in some of the stuff that I've done. And he had, you know, he didn't have a super deep a dot. It was only 11.4. It's just a bit over the wide receiver average, but certainly made plays down the field. So, you know, gained a lot of yards both before and after the catch. And if he's going to be efficient in both of those regards, you know, you have to regress both, sort of independently, I would say, you know, because he could be worse in, in a catch rate sense or a before the before the catch sense, but still be able to create after the catch uh, if that's a true skill of his or vice versa. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm comfortable projecting him to be a, a, a very f- efficient player again this year. Yeah, so the stat that I had looked up was the yards per catch. If you looked up the yards per catch leaders from last year, Justin Jefferson was fourth. Um, this was during the middle of the season. This was like 12 games in, but he, at the point he had 17 yards per catch. If you looked at the catch rates of all the receivers that were like even close to him, you're seeing guys in like the high fifties, low sixties. And Jefferson's was 72.6% by far the highest. The only guy that was like really even close to him was Will Fuller, you know, with his absurd season with Deshaun Watson there. And then there were some guys like a little bit lower yards per catch that started to get at that 70% catch rate, like Julio Jones, Corey Davis, who we know had two of the you know five highest yards per route runs from last season. And it ultimately Jefferson ended up at a 70.4% catch rate and 15.9 yards per reception. So he did end up regressing a little bit, even towards the very tail end of the season to be expected, but just really good sign. Uh, I do have a tough time knowing where to draft him. Like uh, on a macro standpoint, like I really want to take Justin Jefferson, just betting on the talent. If I get more micro, I'm a little bit worried about the team pass attempts, not overly concerned because we've talked about not being overly concerned about that, but where he's going, you've also got, 
you know, Keenan Allen, you've got Michael Thomas, you've got DK Metcalf, Ivy, like AJ Brown is starting to slip, you know, in drafts. You know, so I don't know. I've been taking him like kind of, I've been sort of just randomizing who I've been taking. I've definitely been taking AJ Brown before this cluster. I do think I have Metcalf a little bit ahead of Jefferson, but then I probably have Jefferson behind Metcalf, but I've been sneaking in some Keenan Allen, some Michael Thomas here and there in that range. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of want exposure to all those guys. So it is tough. I, I see that point. I, I really um, like H.A. Brown and, and I'm very high on Metcalf as well. So I haven't been taking a ton of Jefferson in part because of that, but um doing this projection made me more optimistic. I think I, I had this concern that the type of type of receiver he is, he's, you know, a little bit like slighter from a weight perspective that we couldn't, you know, be confident in his, the stuff that I just broke down and his yards after the catch and things like that. But all of that popped, like he hits on every, sort of every metric in a way that um, like I had thought that we maybe weren't regressing his efficiency enough, but I, after doing the projection, feel more comfortable for the reasons I just described projecting him to be a high efficiency player so I'm definitely going to make sure to get some of it. Okay, Adam Thielen's a good discussion point. This is an old that I have projected more aggressively than you. I have Adam Thielen at 127 targets. I have him at 249 PPR points. You have 233 PPR points. We're both regressing the receiving TD rate. You are a little bit more than me. I have 8.9 receiving touchdowns. You have 7.7. I have a tough time with dealing, you know, he's on the wrong side of 30, but I also feel like so every now and then I reach a player in the projections where I feel like I'm being as conservative as possible and he's still coming out. Okay. And like, at that point I kind of just cave and say, I'm not going to overthink this. I'm going to take him. Like I have his upside case, like barely weighted, even though I do think, there's an upside case where Justin Jefferson gets hurt and he, Adam Thielen has an absurd target share. I think for him specifically, that's maybe not a huge net earner, you know, because we've talked about guys like Justin Jefferson help the offense as a whole. We saw the huge touchdowns that Adam Thielen had, which helped him be decent at fantasy last year, despite seeding that target share to the younger, more talented receiver in Justin Jefferson. But I like Adam Thielen in round five and these this kind of like new ADP we've seen where the wide receivers are thrust up. We have him and T. Higgins close in our ranks. I've been taking T. Higgins over Adam Thielen, but after T. Higgins, like I've been taking Higgins over Thielen, but I've been taking Thielen over Brandon Ayuk, I guess, is kind of like in my reference of players roughly in drafts. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a good spot to think of him. I definitely want Higgins. Uh, I might take Ayuk, but yeah, th- I think that makes sense. As far as his TD rate, um, it's, fu- it's funny. I had the same kind of discussion doing this, in- internal discussion doing this projection about how much to regress, regress him. It, what stuck out to me, and it sticks out to me in your projections, is I had feeling for more touchdowns than Jefferson on fewer targets. About ele- I have 11 fewer targets. You have him about eight and a half fewer. Um, and you you have that gap kind of wide. You have 1.4 more TDs for Thielen. I didn't feel as confident in that. So I bumped up Jefferson's TD rate a little higher than it was last year. And, I, and it might have been part of why I regressed Thielen as far as I did. I will note on Thielen, 13% TD rate last year, which was massive. 12 and a half the year before, also massive. So he has two years in a row that are incredible. But the three years before that, 5.8%, 2.8%, 5.4%, which is more like in line with the 2.8% is obviously kind of a, a really low one, but 
I, I have him at 6.4% TDs, which is higher than any of those three years, which was also part of, you know, his prime, if you will. Um, the last two years have been really high. And, and I, I, when I looked back further, I kind of decided I didn't want to wait those last two years so much. I wasn't that confident in his TDs, especially if Jefferson's maybe bumped a little. Still a feeling for more uh, a higher TD rate than Jefferson, but it got them. It got me down to where they basically were scoring about the same amount of TDs total. Yeah, I'm at about seven percent, and uh, I have kind of like two components to doing my receiving touchdown rate, like two different models. One is just kind of like a regressed baseline based on their recent data, past three seasons data, and then layering in like the amount of re- regression we need to layer in. And that has Thielen at like 8.8% TD rate because it's been so high the last two years has Jefferson at 5.1% TD rate. Then I also have an algorithmic TD rate. That's a little bit more dynamic based on like a dot and certain things like that. That has Adam Thielen at a 6% TD rate and Justin Jefferson at a 6.1% TD rate. I generally, you know, with a lot of stuff with modeling, you know, you average the models and that's kind of ends up being the, the best you can do. I have them averaged, but it is interesting that the straight algo that's um, weights the actual history a little bit less and weights the profile a little bit heavier does have them even, even slanted, you know, slightly towards Justin Jefferson and TD rate. Yeah, that is interesting. Nothing given here in the wide receiver three plus conversation, right? Like we can just move on. No one's you got anything to say about Chad no. BB and no, no. And that's they're going to use two. They're going to use two tight ends a lot. We can say that. I mean, they they use Kyle Rudolph and Irv Smith a lot. Uh, that's how I took the comments from Mike Zimmer this off season, where he said, "I don't think Irv Smith's role is going to grow. It's going to be Tyler Conklin's role growing." I think that makes a ton of sense because Irv Smith was already playing quite a bit because they were using both tight ends. And so, yeah, naturally, they're saying Tyler Conklin's going to be the other one that's playing a lot in two tight end sets, and his role is going to grow accordingly. And what that means, if, if you have two tight ends on the field and Dalvin Cook, you only have two receivers on the field. So no other receivers matter. Yeah, and we have extremely similar projections on both Irv Smith and Tyler Conklin, giving Irv Smith about 73 targets and Conklin about 38 to 39, essentially half of that. I know a lot of people want Irv Smith to happen. I think he's fine where he's being drafted. I don't really have a hot Irv Smith take. I think, you know, based on what you said about Tunyon, I'm probably taking Tunyon over Irv Smith. And uh, I feel better about that than I probably did before we started this podcast. Uh, Anything for you on Irv? Yeah, I'll just say, I think that that quote I mentioned has gotten a lot of play and it, it, it didn't take me off of Irv's, like some optimism for Irv, who was a good prospect and and is maybe in that range where after they don't hit the first couple years we sort of lose a little interest but we know tight ends break out later so he could be a good cost adjusted later breakout play Um, but specifically on the quote people took that in my opinion as Irv Smith's production won't change I don't think that was necessarily a fair way to take it I think what Zimmer was saying makes a lot of sense in the context of their two tight end sets where Conklin's going to get a lot more snaps but Kyle Rudolph was a pretty capable second tight end. And now that Irv is competing with Conklin instead of Rudolph, I do think there's room for Irv Smith to have a, a little bit of a higher target share on, you know, on, on, the, on the overall tight end targets. And if he really differentiates himself from Conklin as the third clear weapon in this offense, that's where the breakout case kind of comes in. It's a little tough to see, though. Like we said, there's a lot of issues with the run lean in this offense and then Jefferson and Thielen both being awesome. So uh, you know, absent, like maybe feeling missing some time or something. I don't know that Irv's going to kind of smash. 
at running back, you know, Dalvin Cook, clear number two back. Any difference of opinion there? Clear, nope. clear two. No, he comes out comes out that way for me for sure. Yeah, and I, I I think I mentioned this on an earlier pod we did, but he was coming out for me as like kind of the two last year before like the whole lot risk and stuff, and then he kind of did it. So some self fulfilling bias there for me, I'm sure, but I feel really good about Dalvin as the clear two in redraft. It starts to get muddied a little bit after that at the running back position. Behind him, we have Alexander Madison, who I like as a zero RB guy. Uh, it's tough. You know, we, we talk about AJ Dillon. You know, Madison doesn't quite have the same standalone value that Dillon's going to have because we have seen them give the workhorse role to Dalvin Cook that they, you know, Green Bay doesn't necessarily give to Aaron Jones. On the positive side, we when they have been like way ahead in games, we've seen Madison, like Madison's put up some big rushing numbers very late in games at times. So I do think as far as best ball, like he can get you some usable weeks. As far as managed leagues, though, this is pretty much a bet against Dalvin Cook's health. Right. And I agree. Uh, one thing I'll note is, you know, we've at least seen him be efficient. I think people are kind of down on, on how certain we can be that he'll be the lead back, but like he coaches tend to care about yards per carry. I don't think they matter, but 4.6 as a rookie 4.5 in his second year, he's consistently been above average in those regards. And his catch rate has been over 80% both years and as receiving yards per target, he's returned strong numbers there as well. So as far as like what he's done with the opportunities he's gotten so far in his career, um, you know, he hasn't cr- crushed for fantasy, but I don't think the Vikings would have any sort of fatigue on him as their clear number two. Like he's done everything they've asked of him. And uh, I think he's still a good target, like you said. And I think we have a tendency to kind of overplay in our minds like a specific week and everyone, you'll play chalk Alexander Madison against Atlanta. And he went 10 for 26 with no touchdowns, two targets, one catch, four yards. And people are like, well, if Cook goes down, you know, Madison can't handle it. It's one game, literally the week before when Cook got hurt, Madison went 20 for 112 in that game, caught three balls for 24 yards. You know, week 17 when he started, you know, 21 for 95 and a touchdown, also caught three balls for 50 yards and a touchdown. So, like, we don't know exactly what Madison's going to look like if Cook's out because three games is a super small sample. You know, even – you and to the extent that, that we know, yeah, to the extent we know anything, the one game that you mentioned that it's sticking out to everyone is probably not the best indicator. Because, like I said, even despite that poor game and not having a massive role all year, he still wound up very efficient on the year. So, like, he's doing things right. He's doing. He's do, he's good. <laughs> Going over to Detroit, we are this. This is the most in line we are in play calling. We have them at sixty-two and a half plays, about thirty-five point six pass attempts per game, and twenty-four point seven rush attempts per game. I think it's going to be a pretty boring. How offense. are we so close? I just made this up. <laughs> I know, it's, and and I did to a large extent too because it's a new coach, it's a new quarterback. But I think the coach has been pretty clear. Like this is kind of Adam Gase light where we're going to have, you know, the Jets last year, even though they were bad, they didn't throw a lot and they didn't run a lot of plays. Like, like that That's how Campbell sounds like he's going to be with Detroit, right? Like he's not going to give into game script. He's, they're just, it's going to be ugly. And with golf, I know some people think he has like some upside. Like I just don't, uh, I have no room for Jared Goff in my life. Yeah. There's no upside. There, uh, Immobile, immobile quarterback has been efficient in the past 
for reasons that we don't necessarily know, but could be related to offense. Certainly he had better weapons in, in with the Rams. He's been efficient as a passer in the past, I should say. Um, doesn't add a lot with his legs, obviously. And so you have, it, it's weird too. Like I, I have huge error bars all the way down on this team. We talked in the earlier episodes on the series about like where our confidence interval should be on certain projections. This is like the, the, the one I'm probably most confused about even maybe even more than Houston, which is the other one. But we don't know about the volume, you know, to, to your point we're, we're hearing and we think that they're going to run a lot, but we don't know that for certain, right? We don't really, really know anything for certain. Also, Goff had this low dot in his old offense in that Rams offense, a lot of short passes, never really got vertical. All of his top receivers here look like deep threats. Perriman, Tyrell Williams, downfield guys their whole careers. Quintus Cephas even last year was a downfield guy, uh, you know, in the role he was in. They even brought in like Khalif Raymond as a rotational receiver from Tennessee, who's a downfield guy. How does that fit? Right. Like, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. Typically the receivers carry their a dots back to the quarterback. That's not the quarterback who dictates to the receiver, which means Goff's going to have to throw downfield a lot more, which is not something we saw a lot from him and the Rams, especially in these last couple of years. So it is like a really challenging passing game to project. Yeah. And I'm a little more optimistic on the receivers where like my, any optimism I have for Goff is that, he can, even though he had that low a dot, like he's got a big arm and we, I don't know. We've seen quarterbacks in bad offenses where it's just like, like nothing's happened. Like I think golf can support some big plays here and there. Um, and like, at least get the push the ball downfield a little bit, even if it's like a lower a dot overall, I think like the distribution of throws, uh, we can see him attempt some tight window throws and whatnot. So, whether that comes to fruition or not, we'll see. But I have been drafting Brashad Perriman very late as, like, I don't know, a guy that I could see. This is a projectable volume type thing, but I think Perriman's, like, decent, and I think he can get a really high target share here. Like, I don't think there's too much competition for him to do that. And with wide receivers more so than the quarterback, I care about, the volume over the efficiency. You know, we see this in DFS when people are like, oh, play quarterbacks and negative game scripts because they're going to throw a lot. And like all the data actually suggests that that's not a good thing because quarterbacks and negative game scripts are generally inefficient. But for receivers, in some ways it helps because the fantasy points per target component, like catches matter, especially in a full PPR league. Yeah, and and Perriman's been efficient over the last few years. Uh, that depth adjusted racer I've talked about has been efficient, even at a really high a dot, meaning, um, you know, a lot of air yards. So, you know, I, I adjust for that. He's been pretty above average the last couple of years and, and three years ago uh, was way above average. I think that's the year he was in uh, Tampa Bay and had that really impressive late season stretch. But yeah, yards per target just from a raw perspective has have been strong. And that's in part because his a dot's been really strong. And to your point, the targets could be there just sort of because no one else, there's no one else that we really feel comfortable about. I just have a hard time knowing if it's going to be him. It's going to be Tyrell, who has also been efficient at times and got paid a little bit more money than Perriman. If it's going to be um, Cephas stepping forward or, or the rookie Amon Ross St. Brown, who's the one guy who does look like more of an underneath target. And I think people are on him for that reason that Goff, you know, might like, you know, clue, clue into that a little bit more. Um, but I have a hard time, you know, expecting that to be a certainty either. I mean, all of them for both of us, all, all of them, we project all four of those guys between 60 and 90 targets. Both of us did that. And we have different sort of ranges for each player, but we're all right in that same range. 
Yeah, and I maybe should be mixing in Tyrell and St. Brown a little bit more late just because the opportunity is there for one of them. The cost is really good in best ball. And you know, try not to get take locked onto one guy when it's so uncertain. At tight end, we do have a decent discrepancy with TJ Hawkinson. I'm maybe too light on him. I'm just like so afraid to get too aggressive on anyone in this offense. I have him at 99 targets. You have him at 124, which, you know, that's a massive difference. That's a 25% increase, which essentially is like a 25% increase in the fantasy points scored for Hawkinson. And I've been taking him a lot and not a lot. I've been taking him in best ball at the five, six turn when Andrews isn't there. I've been taking Andrews ahead of him. I've been taking Pitts ahead of him. Interested where you have Hawkinson versus Andrews. Cause with your projection, you might have Hawkinson ahead of Mark Andrews. Yeah. I was just going to look at that. I, I, I assume I do. Cause I'm pretty aggressive on his projection. Um, yeah. His projection comes out ahead of Andrews, not by a ton, only 10 points in PPR uh, in okay. 10 and premium. It's 15 points. Um, and, and Pitts is a little lower on my projection than both of those guys. But, you know, we, we know that the, the range for Pitts is just very, very wide. The Hawkinson, when I, when I do his projection, the, the logic behind the high targets for Hawkinson is that, uh, last year he had 20, he was targeted on 20.8% of his routes, 19.5% the year before. There's really no one else on the roster that has that type of pedigree, like hitting close to 20%. Pretty much, you know, Perriman and, and Tyrell and all these guys, pretty much all around 15% uh, targets per route run. Quintez Cephas, uh, I also noted on him um, in my notes, had a 14.8% last year, which is pretty decent for a rookie and is right in that range of like Brashad and Tyrell's typical rates. So that might be a positive sign for Cephas. But I also just talked about how, you know, all those guys have have had higher A dots, and we don't really necessarily know how they're going to be used in this offense because. You know, a guy like Robbie Anderson is a good example of a guy who had a high A dot and then all of a sudden lower A dot in a completely different offense. Um, we could see some of that, but Hawkinson sort of projects as not having as much uh, competition in, in the lower A dot range as well. And and with those stronger targets per out run rates and and not really knowing who's going to be the clear guy, I think it's fairly easy to see paths to him getting twenty percent or more of the targets, which is a pretty big number for for a tight end. Yeah, that's a huge number. If you're getting that type of volume with Hawkinson, like you're super unlikely to be disappointed. Because um, I, I saw, I forgot who was having a Twitter argument, but was someone someone was pointing out how inefficient Hawkinson has been through his first two years, and he's been pretty bad. But like the retort to that was, and I think they were saying like even if Hawkinson gets this many targets, like with this efficiency, the retort to that was basically like any tight end with X amount of targets is like never depend bad like just because the gap in targets between Hawkinson if he's going over 100 plus and like you're me and almost any tight end being drafted him is going to be like a really large gap uh to the point where that volume is much more important than the actual efficiency there so and I'll say after doing this projection and looking at those targets per outrun numbers to to answer your question better and, and build off everything you just said which I totally agree with I think Hawkinson is going to be my tight end for like I he comes out better in projections, and this is a spot where I'm going to lean into that because over pits. Oh, I think even over pits, I, I I feel so comfortable in the target volume, and I've talked before about how the target, like being able to hit target volume, is pretty huge to hit that ceiling. And then you can say, well, what if his efficiency actually improves? He was a rookie and a second year player, a young rookie and young second year player with a good pedigree and a lot of reasons athletically and and all that that we think he could actually be an efficient tight end. So what if that efficiency improves? Like that's 
I'm not actually seeing that as a huge negative when we can so easily see him hit such a, a strong target number. Um, I think the the floor is higher than Pitts, and the ceiling for this year is probably comparable. Hawkinson. Oh, it's uh, get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fine. 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 <laughs> Pitts, Pitts could literally just light the league on fire. Yes, I agree with that. But but I am I'm bumping up the TJ Hawkinson target share as we speak. Um, probably moving him more in line with Andrews and having that be like closer to a coin flip than I've had it in Andrews's favor. And I do think like, not to get too granular, but it is a format thing too, right? Like we have to know the skill sets. If we're in half PPR, you know, maybe I'm just betting on this hyper-efficient season from Mark Andrews. If we're in full PPR, you know, give me, give, give me all, give me the extra targets from TJ Hawkinson, right? Like it's a pretty easy way to differentiate them. And sometimes the ADPs don't reflect the scoring changes in format, which like can be a pretty big deal. I'm trying to look here. Like you have, for example, you have Hawkinson at 66 catches. And then if I go over to our old Baltimore projections from no, that. No, I have them at 80. You have them at 66. Or I have you have them at 80. You have Mark Andrews at 66 or 67. So right. that's like a that's a 13 point difference. That's you know that's in in tight end premium scoring to half PPR scoring. That's a 13 point swing. You know that's two full touchdowns, which might sound a little bit, but like, and again when we're talking about like ranges of outcomes, like it starts to just tilt things a little bit. So just keep in mind those scoring differences. Running back is pretty interesting for Detroit. DeAndre Swift, I'm really excited to hear your take on. I'm very low on his target stuff. I am at 51 catches. You am at 59. I bumped him up. Jack Miller's been hounding me saying this is too low. The issue I've had a little bit is like kind of my math spits out. If I keep increasing these targets for him, he's going to spit out as a really good pick in the third round where we're generally scared of these running backs and you know speaking of redraft manage where the adps are a little bit more in line where they've been historically so far you know not kind of like i know underdog adps have like switched a ton but like ffpc football guys nffc online championship that sort of thing oh uh, do you see any merit to deandre swift as like a, a dead zone exception or yeah how are you approaching swift well he's not you know purely into the dead zone if he's the, the there's been third rounds that third rounders who have hit and we've talked about this with the dead zone that typically when guys do hit in the dead zone it's it is young players who are just better than we think they are basically uh and swift showed elements of that in his rookie year he showed explosiveness he had a really strong catch rate um there's you know explosiveness at running back like high efficiency plays can be huge they have a good offensive line and like they're gonna run I think there's potential for him to have some boom rushing plays basically. And then the receiving is a huge one. What the way that I wound up on this offense, I think is interesting to think about is I have them with fewer than 50% of their targets going to the wide receivers. That's a really low number. Typically you're going to be in the 60 to 65% range for the wide receivers. Uh, teams that are in the fifties are low getting below 50% where I have them at 48.7% is extremely low, but there are teams that do that pretty much every year. There's at least a couple teams that get down that low where they really feature their running backs and tight ends in the passing game. And as I did this projection, that's sort of what I came to. I was like, you know, there's going to be a lot of targets for Hawkinson. 
And I think there's going to be so many for Swift and even for Jamal Williams as the second back that their running back target rates are going to be pretty strong. Swift is pretty clearly their their second best weapon in the passing. You know, it's kind of just trying to think about player skill. Like Perriman, Tyrell, these guys have had good seasons, but it's Hawkinson and Swift. Like if you're the offense, uh, I mean, if you're the offensive coordinator, if you're the team, those are guys that you want to get the ball in their hands in different ways. And so this is a team that I think could end up with a sort of a really low wide receiver target rate at overall, which would would be the way that you would end up boosting Swift's targets quite a bit and could see him getting up around 80 targets, where is, which is where I have him. Uh, and then if he adds you know, the efficiency and the big play stuff that we saw last year behind a good offensive line, there's ways he can have a really good year still, even on a, on a kind of bad team. Typically bad team running backs that have good years, they require a lot of receiving. Um, this is a scenario where you can see that, I think. Yeah, and I think the, the receptions could get up there. I've had a harder time, I guess, like in practice versus in theory. Like in theory... I'm like, oh, you know, Swift is an exception here. And then in practice, I just kind of keep taking the the wide I'm kind of the same way. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of the same way. He's, a, he's not a fun pick, right? This We don't think the team's going to be good and all those things that, that we're talking about. But he might wind up being a value. The, a lot of people had him pre-draft as a prospect ahead of Jonathan Taylor as the number one in the class. And he looked really good as a rookie, right? He was efficient in all phases. So, um Maybe yeah, maybe he's a really, really good NFL running back, right? And that would be interesting. Yeah. Uh, Jamal Williams, I know early, and I, I do want to say too, like earlier in the offseason, I was taking Swift in round three and I've kind of backed off. But like, like too, if you're doing like the crazy hyper-fragile build in best ball, I've done some three RB and done teams. Like, And Swift is the type of guy I'm taking in round three. Like I had success with that last year with taking Jonathan Taylor as my round three guy and being done. Uh, managed leagues... Pat Crane and I just did a podcast this morning. It's, it's just like that much tougher to justify running back picks. In, in How about this? How about this? Because he's not this level of prospect, but we've taken Saquon Barkley really high for several years, even though we've had a lot of concerns about the offense because we think he's just that good. Like, is that a comp that makes you think about what Swift could do in a bad offense a little more favorably at all? Yeah, I think a little bit, um, especially if you're not buying this Anthony Lynn, Jamal Williams stuff. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it makes sense. Like if you remove Jamal Williams, that's kind of what you're saying is like, yeah, Swift is Barkley. And Swift, so, yeah, because of Williams kind of has to be more Camara. But yeah, you're right. Uh, it's different because we knew with Barkley that he would be the, you know, the, the workhorse. Yeah. And with Jamal Williams, I've been drafting him, I guess, like on par with the field. Like I think he's a, okay zero rb candidate he's not my favorite he's you know he's a little bit of like the hybrid like where he has usability and upside but it's just like not the same level of upside as aj Dillon. so i think it's correct that he's going about like 10 rb picks later than aj Dillon. i don't have a lot to say about jamal williams i don't either <laughs> yeah i mean uh, to the to the p- concerns about the running back position people are excited about williams but like to the concerns that are pushing down Swift. And I think the offense really is pushing him down, even into the third round. Like if he was on a good offense after he was a, as efficient as he was in his, his rookie year, he, he would he would be like, you know, where Akers was before Akers' unfortunate injury and where those guys are going at the one-two turn. Um, the fact that he's in the third, like the offense is pushing him down. I don't feel like the offense is really pushing Williams down. People are, are seeing him as a pretty – one of the one of the stronger like mid round running back options and 
I, like I don't see a lot of paths unless Swift goes down to Williams having a massive role. And even if Swift does go down, like Jamar Jefferson's a pretty interesting third running back that I think would play. Yeah, I know Siegel's on Jamar Jefferson, which you know, sometimes with these prospects that I don't know a lot about, it's all I need to hear to get a little yep. bit excited. <laughs> um, Jamal Williams' hype for for a moment there got out of control. Like when Anthony Lynn first made those comments, like he was like in round eight, nine guy, and that was like kind of like a what are we doing here type thing. Now he's settled in. I'm looking at like FFPC ADP. He's RB43, like 120 overall, which is like more – you know, like still ten, Singletary. End of the 10th round. Yeah, like I would take Singletary over him, right? Like yeah. I feel more comfortable in Singletary's specific role and also probably even upside cases. And, and I don't know that Singletary has a ton of upside at all, but like what is Williams' upside in an offense that's not very good? That's sort of my point is like I just made the case that the, the pass block or the run blocking could be good enough that Swift could be good, but like Jamal Williams is not an explosive player. He's been good in the past because he's caught passes and he's been in the Green Bay offense and scored touchdowns and things, but I don't think he's going to create you like yeah. with Swift. It's like he could create stuff on his own. I, I don't think Jamal Williams can do that enough to, or get enough work to be really that interesting in a bad offense. Per, yeah. The, the upside for Jamal Williams is probably like, maybe you get a steady ish back, you know? Yeah. yeah and you're exactly. like, maybe you're, you're just like, like if you have a zero RB team that like went bad and you just don't want to be bleeding points like that, but that's what kind of why I'd rather take like more like, and, and that's a good point. Like in, in the past catchers in best ball zero RB, like yeah, get a little exposure to him. I think that's fine. I, I think in managed leagues, the, the 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 other side that we haven't really talked about is like we're all like drafting him in the tenth or eleventh round. You are sort of buying into those Anthony Lynn comments still. You're assuming he's going to have a role. And the other side of it is we know he's sharing the backfield with a back that I was just talking about could be really good, like one of the best in the league. There's scenarios where Swift just takes over the whole backfield because he's that good, and they're like, all right, you know what? New coaching staff's like, look, we got to just give him the ball every time. He's our best player. You know, they turn him into Cam Akers for the Rams late last year or even Montgomery for the Bears. They're like, this is the only thing that we're doing that's working. Let's give Swift the ball every play. That would just completely tank Jamal Williams, right? Yeah. Like, the fact that he's sharing a, a backfield at the back that's way better than him is challenging. <laughs> yeah, because he's not getting drafted for his upside. He's getting drafted for, like, he has an okay, an acceptable base amount of volume. And to your point, if that disappears – it's like what? Well, well, what do we do? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what, what are we doing here? <laughs> yeah. All right, that's going to do it for us on part six of the establish the edge offseason projection special. We'll be back with the NFC West for part seven, and then after that, part eight NFC East. So, two more of these divisional pods to go, Ben. It's going pretty well. It's it's exciting. We're getting towards the finish here. Make sure you're following Ben's stuff, bengretch.substack.com, Stealing Bananas podcast on iTunes. Make sure you're following my stuff over at Establish the Run and that you rate and review the Establish the Edge podcast on iTunes. Thank you for listening, everybody.